Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, I'm breach. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm really grateful for sobriety. And um, it it was suggested that I could read something that I found inspirational, but um, I forgot all about it until I just a minute ago. But I just found something in my book that I've written down from another fellowship, but I think it's um, totally relevant. It's grant me patience with the changes that take time, appreciation of all that I have, tolerance of those of different struggles, and the strength to get up and try again one day at a time. And uh, I love that I'm sober and that I'm learning, still learning, how to live one day at a time, despite being sober since 1987, the 1st of December. And um, I love being sober and I love that I got a chance to live life again. And uh, I say again, but um, I never knew how to live life. So a bit about my background. I grew up um, in England of Irish family. And um, I grew up in a council estate and um, I don't remember life being as difficult as when we moved. So I was 11 when we moved and we moved to a, a different side of town where it was private housing and I didn't know anybody. And I remember finding that move really, really difficult. And when I look back on my childhood, course I wasn't aware of the things at the time but at the time I was I was feeling like not good enough and that was because of the messages I received that um why aren't you more like so and so down the road you know so um I remember in my young days kind of just wanting to be another person really I used to um I used to wish that I was this girl her name was actually Patricia Connell and she was one of those girls who was kind of good at everything. And she had, uh, she was uh, very popular with the other girls. And I just kept thinking, I just wish I was her. I just don't want to be me. You know, I felt awkward and too big and too shy and afraid. I didn't know it at the time, but full of fear, you know, I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of going to sleep. I was afraid of the shadows. I was afraid of spiders, you know, um, so many things put that fear, that not a fear in my stomach that I never had words on to say, but that, um, you know, that I used to get stomachache a lot and not want to go to school. And then, of course, I, when I was 11, we changed schools. So it meant leaving my primary school, which was mostly like Irish Catholic and going to this Protestant secondary school where I really was like the fish out of water and I didn't know hardly anybody there all my friends had gone on to a different school and uh, I was just terrified I remember thinking looking back at that first year and I was filled with terror um, I used to be so afraid to put my hand up if I knew the answer to a question I was so afraid I wanted to hide and fade into the corner and uh, of course the strong will pick out the weak and so the teacher that was the most bullying, she used to pick me out for that first year. And uh, by the end of the year, something must have happened because I told my mother eventually. And my mother went to the school and that teacher stopped picking on me. And by the end of the year, I found a friend. And I still, I still know this woman today, so many years later. And um, 
eventually when I found this friend and a few more friends I was I was like booking the system and it felt like I don't want this. I don't want this uniform. I don't want these regulations. I don't want to learn this history about what happened 200 years ago. And so it was kind of my um, my rebellious streak came up because it was like, I can't fit in. I can't be the best. So I don't really want to be part of, you know, and I, I flunked out of a lot of classes and a lot of um, subjects and re would refuse to learn point blank something that I just wouldn't see the point in learning so um, you know from a young age I had that very um, very uh, stubbornness single-mindedness and a bit of a fuck you attitude as well you know it was like I, I don't want to live by those rules I have no clue how I want to live but I don't want to live with those rules and then I discovered alcohol and I was only a young teenager. I was probably 15. And I went out with a friend um, and she got really drunk and sickened. She had long blonde hair and she was all sickened to her blonde hair. And I remember thinking, this is terrible. This is awful. But with the two of us, we used to go and drink neck a bottle between us in public toilets and then go out at night and of course I was just young so it was just at weekends and I used to have I from the very word go it was blackouts for me and couldn't remember what happened what I did what I said and I used to try and laugh that off and think that that was really hilarious but of course like inside I was feeling that uh, feeling of shame and you know why did that happen to me how come my friend she can remember what happened last night so that was the beginning of it, you know, and um, I was no way was I going to try and give that up, but I was going to try and control it. So, you know, my ambition was if I could only go out at the weekend and have enough drinks to get nicely and get that nice feeling where you're you're just a little bit tipsy and you're kind of a bit more relaxed and you're not as uptight and you're, you know, you're able to chat and dance and laugh with people. Um, and of course, I never found that. And from a young age, you know, I got involved in relationships that that were very unhealthy for me. And I didn't know I didn't have it's like I didn't have any boundaries or any rule book or any guidance, any advice. And anybody that did try and tell me anything, I didn't want to listen because it it just didn't it didn't make sense to me. Nothing really made sense, you know, and I kept thinking if I could get away, get away from school, get away from family, get away from this town, I'll be okay somehow, you know. And so I left school at 16. I went working. My parents had a shop at the time. I worked in the shop. and But I just didn't get on with my mother, you know. And um, I was drinking. And so that was causing ruptions really in the house because I'd come in with my knees cut open. I'd come in maybe vomiting in the sink and... um. My mother was very angry with me. My father probably was too, but he was a quiet man. And so, you know, I was I was really angry with her. I felt like she didn't love me. And I didn't feel, you know, that wanted and needed and accepted and part of. And so um, by the following year, I was, I was on antidepressants and I had saved up enough that I had decided that I was going to kill myself. And I took an overdose one night after I'd been drinking 
all day. And luckily, my father found me. I was brought to a hospital. My stomach was pumped. And my parents, they just didn't know how to deal with it. And so it was never mentioned. And that's how it was in our family. We 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 didn't know how to deal with anything. And so we couldn't talk about anything. And there was no help. There was no, like, follow-up. I think a doctor did say, you won't do this again. And I said, no, I won't. And it did frighten me a bit. But... Um, by the age, yeah, a little bit older than when I was 17 and I ran away from home. My sister was living in London at the time and um, I ran down to my sister's. It was uh, it was over 100 miles away and I got there. She wasn't there and I had to go into a B&B, a, a sordid B&B for the night. And the next day I got to her and she said, oh, I thought you'd be coming. The police were here. And so she let me stay with her and I stayed with her for about six months. And I got a job in a bar, would you believe? You know, that was where I was comfortable around alcohol. And uh, it was very scary. I was very terrified. And I just didn't know what to do. You know, I'd left school, I'd left home, I'd left any job I had. And here I was trying to invent myself in London at the age of 17, going on 18. And my life just went on like that for years. It was like I was totally, totally lost and totally didn't know who I was. And I, it's like I just didn't have the rule book. I just didn't know. There was my sister. She was a nurse. She was settled down. She was married. She had a child. She was doing this regular work. And I was just looking around me thinking, what will I do? Where will I go? What can I do next? It was it was all about trying to reinvent myself because nothing seemed to be working. So for me, the next step was to go abroad and to work in Sweden for a year as a an au pair. And, you know, when I got to Sweden, I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is beautiful country and it's clean. And and this is the answer, you know, and everybody here is eating loads of natural yogurt. And, and they gave me a bicycle to cycle around and put the little girl on the front of the bicycle. And I thought I've made it, you know. And then three days later, the lady I was working for, a really nice couple. And she said, oh, there's another old pair down the road. And uh, would you like to go meet her? And I went to meet her and she took a bottle of drink out. And the next thing I knew was that I was vomiting in a nightclub with a T-shirt all covered in it. And I didn't get home until the small hours and I didn't know what happened. And they didn't know what happened to this young, beautiful girl that arrived to them a few days before. Here she was, a drunk. But I stayed with that family. It kind of terrified me. Drinking terrified me because I would never know what I would do, what I would say, where I'd end up, what would happen to me. And um, But I would not dream of giving it up. But it was like being on a tightrope trying to not drink and not get plastered, you know, and um, I didn't get into that state again for some time. Um, but of course, the, the job ended. It was a year contract and I went back to England and, you know, I didn't didn't know what to do. And I started doing part time education, just a friend who suggested it to me. And, you know, and drinking, drinking regularly and thinking this is the only way that I can live. I don't know any other way to, to, to live. I couldn't imagine not drinking because for me, it was kind of like when I could breathe, it was when I could relax. It was when I could let go a bit, you know, of that fear and anxiety. 
And uh, so, yeah, I went back to, to education, doing part time and working part time and supporting myself. And eventually I went back and I, I did a, a degree and I lived in London. I went back to London and um, I lived with a, a relation and family and I didn't know this lady. She was my mom's cousin. And she turned out, I feel like that she saved my life because she was just I knew that she loved me, even though she didn't accept the way that I was carrying on some of the time. And she used to give out awful stink to me. She was trying to run a B&B for foreign students and I'd come falling in the door, uh, bringing in all kinds of unsavory characters and she would let rip at me naturally. But then she'd forgive me and we'd get on with it again. And the two of us actually used to go out dancing together to the Galtee Moor in London. If anybody ever heard of the Galtee Moor, it was like where all the all the Irish in London used to go. And um, and I had some great times with that lady. But when I think back to my head, it's like there was two people inside me because one part of me was I was happy. I was living with her. I was going to college. I was very uptight. I was drinking. And another part of my brain was suicidal. And a boy, a man, a young man I was going out with at the time, he committed suicide. Um, he'd been in a psychiatric hospital for a while and he came out and he put the pipe from the car into, into the exhaust, into the car, and he, he died that way. And I was quite, I was quite obsessed with doing that for a while, but I knew, I felt that I couldn't do it to this relation that I was living with because I knew she cared for me and I knew she had an awful lot on her plate. She had a son with a disability and she was widowed. And she was, she, yeah, she was looking after him and she thought a lot of me. I knew she thought a lot of me. And um, so I, I just couldn't do it. So I ended up getting through my college. I don't know how. Um, I was afraid to drink in the day because I knew if I started drinking in the day, I wouldn't know how to stop. So I used to usually try and limit myself to evenings of drinking. Whenever that would be, I can't remember. It probably wasn't every night. I wasn't a, a daily top-up drinker. I was more like a bender drinker, you know, um, hit it and then maybe recoil back from it, you know, and try and get over it physically as well as mentally, emotionally. So, um, yeah, that I carried on like that for those four years when I was in London. And then when that all finished, I decided that it was time to move again you know, on the move again. So it was a move to Ireland and working in a hotel where it was, uh, it's a place called Listunvarna. It's actually not that far from where I work now. And they have a crazy month of matchmaking in the month of September. And that's when I went working in the hotel. <laughs> and I just loved it because it was bedlam. It was mad, totally mad. There was like fellas coming in looking looking for their teeth the next day. It was that kind of place. And it was the police would come in and we'd close the barriers. And then the police would go out and the barriers would open and the bar would start working. I was working in the bar, of course, you know, where I was comfortable and putting the glass up to the whatever I wanted when the back was turned, you know. So um and then I went off to make my fortune with two other women from Limerick and uh I ended up as a van driver in Dublin. I didn't even know the city, you know, so um, it was kind of one crazy, crazy after another. And part of that craziness, I loved it. Another part of me wanted it to stop, but I had no idea how it was going to stop. But anyway, only a few years later, um, 
I'm back to London again, looking for something, back again to Ireland another year later. And uh, I was only in Ireland about, I was in Dublin about a year. And I thought, this is it. I've, I've hit it now. You know, it was like, I was feeling more comfortable. I was, you know, the pubs were open day round and I could get drink late at night and I had a boyfriend and we were getting on great. And, and then one day I said, I'm going to go to AA and just see if they can help me just cut down a bit. Because I still had the two people inside me. I had the person inside me that could I could be full of joy, drinking, laughing. And the next minute I could be just crying uncontrollably with a terrible darkness that was inside me that I had no idea what it was. So, yeah, I was living in the South Circular Road and not far from where AA was the head office at that time. And uh, I came across a woman who shared her experience, strength and hope with me. And she said to me, you need never drink again a day at a time. She said, you, you'd be amazed at your life. She said, and she just shared her own. She wasn't really telling me you're an alcoholic or anything, but it was like the, the penny was dropping and the awful dawning realization that I was an alcoholic like this woman. But this woman had a solution and she was telling me that her life had changed. And I knew she... She knew what I had gone through. She was talking about coming in late at night, put the frying pan on, setting the place on fire or different things like that. Crazy, crazy stuff. And um, <clears throat> so I went to my first meeting that day on her guidance. I went to a place called Madonna House. And uh, yeah, that was full of these massive religious statues, you know, because it was obviously, it must have been owned by the some part of the church. I thought, oh, my God, I thought I'd gone away from all of this because I was brought up quite strong Catholic with my parents. Um, going to Catholic school, my first school and all of that. And when I saw the big religious, I thought, oh, Jesus, no, not more of this. Now rules, regulations telling me what to do, when to do it, all of that. But um, I got some kind of some kind of recognition and identification, as we call it, at meetings that these are the people, there weren't old men who sat on park benches with brown coats and string around them. They were ordinary people that couldn't control drink and that drank alcoholically, just like me, you know? Even though I was only 29 years old, I felt everybody was ancient. But um, I had a chat with people at the end of the meeting and they were saying, no, they didn't, they weren't daily drinkers either. And that was kind of like, oh, all right. And this dawning, I was an alcoholic. I was 29 years old. The game was up, but there was a solution at the same time. And um, I got another meeting that day and I, I ended up ringing up my boyfriend and saying, I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to AA. And he said, what? An alcoholic. Sure, he was an alcoholic too. Who else would I be going out with? But anyway, um, other people in the family even, you know, when I rang them up and told them, I remember telling my brother and he said, but you weren't that bad, you know, but I remembered him saying you undergo a complete personality change when you drink. And even my father said, oh, you weren't that bad. You know, what does it take? Like a suicide attempt, falling down drunk, not knowing who you are, where you are, you know, but it's a disease of denial. And I didn't just pick that off the tree, you know. My mother said to me, well, you didn't get it off our side of the family, so... <laughs> That was that was the shame of being an alcoholic, the lowest of the low, 
I heard from her as well, you know. So it's like I wasn't I wasn't very delighted at being an alcoholic, even though I knew it in my heart and soul. It wasn't like nobody told me I was an alcoholic. They didn't have to tell me. I got the I got the identification and I got that that mixed sense of relief. The game's over. And uh, I, I gave it another couple of tries for another few weeks. You know, I thought it might be different having wine in a glass at home instead of, you know, sitting up at a bar stool, but it wasn't any different. And and it was only the members that really pointed that out to me because um, I moved out to Bray at that, at that stage after about a week or two coming to AA. And um, I was going to meetings there and I, I confided in one of the members and he said to me, well, you know, you, you end up right back where you were, don't you? And I was like, oh, God, no, I didn't know that. I thought I might be able to get away with a few. So anyway, that that put the, the mockers on that for me. And um, I came to the realisation that I could never again drink safely. I could try and drink, sure, but I wouldn't know what I'd do, where I'd end up or, and did I want to lose the days that I was building up? And I didn't, you know, and I was getting something from the meetings because I was hearing people talk clearly and from the heart for the first time in my life. They weren't pretending anything and they weren't telling me what to do. They were saying how they felt, you know, and and that was total blown away by that. You know, I'd never heard that really. Um, it was all, you know, trying to cover up and make up and, put a face on and pretend and and now I was able to go into a room of people and and not pretend and most of the time I was crying an awful lot in my first few months or or first year I don't remember um but it was like the relief you know and the release of all these emotions that I tried to keep keep the lid on them and keep them down and not really tell anybody who I was because They'd lock me up if they knew. And um, so I'd never gone for outside help. I'd never gone to a doctor or a psychiatrist or anything. I'd probably tried a million ways of trying to control it, but I'd never gone for, for help, you know. And um, and in my early days in AA, it was suggested that I went to ACOA. So um, I went to ACOA in the, um, there was a centre there, the Hanley Centre just outside of um outside of Bray and they did a course there and it, and it wasn't that my parents were alcoholics because they weren't but I identified with all the isms so it was all the trying to keep the face up you can't say how you feel you can't you know you have to shut up and put up and you know and try and make the best of and try and you know try and be achieving something and try and look good and all of that that I wasn't achieving anything so I was going the opposite road. I was kind of reacting to everything, you know, and saying, well, I'm not, I can't be the top of it, of the class. So I'm not going in the class at all, you know? So I ended up with all of that confusion, but, um, and I, I used to hear that if you don't do a step four, you'll drink again. I was terrified of a, a certain, you know, after a certain period of time, terrified of drinking again. And eventually I did my first step four and it was just full of resentment at the whole world not just this person, that person, the other. It was like institutions and politics and governments and, oh, you name it, and it was on my list. And then I don't know when I realised that I had a part in how I looked at the world or how I looked at myself. And, and that's still, I feel that that's ongoing. 
I'll come to that, you know, just lately of some other messages that I feel are in my brain that are quite unhealthy for me, that I still need to work on freeing myself from the past, from the messages that were given me and from the messages that I took on and took to heart. And so, you know, that uh, first fourth step, you know, was like, well, at least I'm giving it a go. I might not have an awful lot of awareness about myself and how I behave the way I behave and how I blame because I was a total victim in my own life. It was like I blamed everybody for the way that I was. I just didn't know how to take that responsibility and say, well, I've been instrumental in in those parts of my life that have, re that have really hurt me. You know, I played a part in that, especially after the age of 18, you know, until then. Yeah, well, the parents have a, have a big influence on you. So, um, yeah, so they told me, you know, I used to love hearing the promises that I've, I'll know a new freedom and a new happiness because I didn't really know what that was. You know, I knew how to be feel free with alcohol in me. I knew that feeling of release, but I didn't really, I didn't know that in sobriety, but I do remember like the very first time going set dancing and lepping around the place and thinking, wow, I can dance without alcohol. I can, I can enjoy myself. I'm just, I'm not like predestined to carry on drinking for the rest of my life. You know, there is something here that is, there is a door that's opened for me and it it was AA. And since then, you know, other doors have opened. So like I say, I went to ACOA and because I used to hear these big men coming into the AA meetings or talking about their feelings. And that really got me because I used to think it was just women that had all them feelings. I used to think I, I wish I'd be a man, you know, that they don't have them feelings. But I'd see these big men coming in and talking about, you know, fear and hurt and childhoods. And it was like they could talk about all that stuff. And I got so much identification and so much freedom because I grew up in a house where I heard this said, you know, um, the neighbours were the most important people in the house. What do the neighbours think of us? You know, so it's like you never talk about family outside of the house that felt like you were, you know, being disloyal. But I learned that I had to start talking about the things that happened to me when I was young and how I felt and how I coped with it, you know. I grew up in a very codependent family. Our family was kind of enmeshed, you know. If one person walked out the room, it's like, where are they gone? What are they doing, you know? Um, and then if you didn't go along with that enmeshment, it's like you were you were abandoned nearly. You didn't belong, you know. You were either totally enmeshed. And I couldn't do the enmeshment. So I was like, and I thought I was free of it because I was away physically, but emotionally, I I was carrying a load of baggage. You know, I had had an awful lot of guilt for leaving the family. And I left my my older brother, he's seven years older than me. He stayed behind and he stayed behind and ran the business with my parents. And um, it was a very um, codependent, unhealthy relationship whereby I had the guilt. So I, I used to try and make it up to the family when I'd go back to them. So I heard in AA, it's funny how certain things really stick in your head, stick in my head. I heard a woman share, I'm doing the right things for the wrong reasons. So I was always bringing gifts back and it was because I felt guilty. And it's like, I, I in just recent years, I've really 
become aware more and more. I suppose it happens so gradually, really, this growth in AA, you know, of seeing myself for who I really am and being able to slowly, very slowly change that, you know, not to have to stay with the same prescription that I that I learned when I was young. So, yeah, um, my sobriety has been full of changes. I mean, it's it's not like my drinking story, obviously, but uh, but in some ways it's very similar because I've just I've kind of still kept moving and changing and trying new things and new jobs, and new courses and at times, you know, different relationships. Um, so, you know, I thought my life would go steady and and it'd be all sort of samey and calmy, you know, and it didn't really go that way at all. And I'm grateful for where it is. I'm grateful for how it's been. I'm grateful for who I am. And uh, at times I have to remind myself of that, you know, because last weekend I was doing this pension application and I had to list where I'd been and how long I'd been there and who I worked for. And and it just looked like this one big crazy mess. And yet I was talking to a friend who stayed here last night and she said, but you've got so much creativity and you've brought so much to all those people that you've met. And so it's like I constantly need to hear a bit of positive because left to my own devices, I'll start feeling that that life was a shit show, really, you know, and that um, I might, I'd only just managed to survive it. I've done more than survive it. I've. I've lived my life and more, of course, more so since I've been sober. So after a year of sobriety, you know, I was offered a place to to work on a craft course for nine months. And yeah, with the help of uh, support from one member in particular in the group who said, this is AA, you know, dangling the carrot now for you to uh, to avail of an opportunity and do something. And, um, you know, it was terrifying for me because it meant moving again, moving 100 miles or more and going to another part of Ireland. And, you know, um, I did that and it was tough. It was it was difficult, you know, and I thought they were all doing it wrong in AA because as soon as I went somewhere different and people were different, they were all doing it wrong. They weren't doing it the right way. But I stayed with it and I got myself a really good sponsor, actually, and a really um, compassionate woman who was really, really good to me. Uh, she's passed away since in sobriety, but um, yeah, I'll never forget her. She was actually very religious. It used to drive me crazy sometimes. She'd be saying, hand it over to the man above. And I was thinking, there's no man above for me. But um, the love of the fellowship and that she loved me and she wanted me to be sober. I could feel that more than her words. It was like her intention was for me to be to be sober and she said come on we'll have a cup of tea and come back to the house we'll have a cup of tea and you know just that connecting with somebody I'd never connected with anybody in my life because even though I was so crazy with my drinking my alcohol I had a complete wall up around myself my wall of fear and keeping people out you know um so that lady yeah we worked together through steps for quite a few years and um yeah, I finished my course and I started, I discovered something I loved with art and with craft and I uh, started working in that area. And that's quite some years ago now. And I've kind of worked on it and developed it over the years. 
and um yeah my life was full of lots of changes yeah I started going out with somebody who was drinking trying to get them sober so that was that was really good for my head not you know a full year of it um but I have to just say you know I was learning and I wasn't I wasn't listening to a lot of people you know of what they, of what they were saying and eventually this woman she gave it to me between the two eyes she said you're hanging around with sick people you know and I thought oh my god I was furious with her but she was dead right you know because I ended up wanting to drink again you know if I am hanging around with people that are drinking and going into pubs and I'm doing all of that and I was trying all of that again so yeah that was Anne Murphy she passed away in sobriety too and um I eventually you know it's like that letting go how on earth do you let go how do you let go and, and not know what your life's going to give you or where you're going to end up or what you're going to do in sobriety, you know? So it was like hanging on, hanging on to anything that I could at times and then feeling the pain of it and, and then thinking, no, I've got to let go. I've got to let go a bit more and a bit more. And and I can't plan at all. I can't plan how this is all going to happen. I have no idea, you know? And uh, so I, I've stayed sober, you know, through all sorts of ups and downs and changes and moves. And my parents got elderly. Well, they moved back to Ireland and um, they were still quite um, well abled when they did. And um, so I got to have quite a few years with them. I actually ended up moving up to be near them and... Um, quite a few years with mum and dad and that was that was great I was able to take them for their appointments it'd be like a big day out for us you know taking to them taking them to the chiropodist or something we'd go out and we'd have tea and you know um it was like repairing the past it really was repairing the past um finding a love and a tolerance and an acceptance on both sides um and they passed away in recent years and I found that really, really hard. Um, yeah, but it, I know it's part of the natural cycle, isn't it? That your parents die and you bury them and you move on. And it was actually, as well as hard, it was like the proudest days of my life in sobriety because it felt like I was there for them. And I was there for them, you know, in their latter years and um, organized a lot of care and a lot of help for them and was just able to show up as myself not somebody else as myself you know so that that is um that has been some of my greatest joys and then some of my hardest things has been um in recent years since they die I realized that uh you know I came to this realization about this relationship with my brother which was really toxic and unhealthy and that um he exercised a lot of control and uh, because I gave it because it was because I'd lived with the fear and the guilt that he'd stayed behind and I'd gone and and lived my life and enjoyed myself and eventually then um, you know he didn't want us to sort out I have a sister my sister as well um, to sort out the will or do anything about it but through the help of AA and my sponsor I found the courage to stand up to him and to say no I'm taking this on I'm sorting this out so um it's taken a lot of sorting out and he doesn't speak to me anymore since that um and he's really angry with me and uh 
I can understand him too in some way because if I was if I was if I didn't have um the, this way of living design of living I've heard it called then I'd be really angry with anybody that um you know messed with my boat or interfered with my power you know I'd hate them and he probably hates me and it's kind of hard in some ways and yet I can't go back and I can't go back to relationships that are unhealthy so if there was to be a relationship which may be one day I don't know I don't know the future I'm quite open but I know it would mean something like sitting down and being honest and and you know and and saying who I am and how I feel and yeah rather than pandering to somebody's whims so um I'm still doing an awful lot of growing up in AA you know I'm still really um I, f I find it amazing at times it's 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 hard as well because you feel like Jesus have I still really got them old ideas in my head you know the old ideas that told me I wasn't good enough and that I wasn't worthy and uh, you know I also go to CODA for my codependency and uh, I didn't go for quite some time and I realized how easy it is for me to make other people my higher power I did that with my mother in the early days when she came to visit me. I wasn't going to meetings and I bumped into a member. He said, I haven't seen you at the meetings. I said, oh, no, my mom's visiting. She said, hello, is she your higher power now? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I can easily just put people before everything, before my sobriety. And uh, I need to I need to stay focused because my head can get wrecked, you know. Um, so I feel that code, codependence anonymous, um, you know, the only requirement is to, is to have healthy, re, loving relationships, something like that. And that was something that I never knew, you know, I never knew how to how to do that. And I am learning. I'm definitely learning because I still can have the wall up with the people closest to me, I can have the wall up and I, I won't really say who I am because I don't want to, um, I don't want to be that vulnerable because I did learn in my drinking that being vulnerable, you, you get taken advantage of, you know. And the some of the hardest things in my sobriety was when I was 12 years sober, I discovered that I'd been raped in my drinking, not only once, but twice. So it happened when I was 17 by my best friend's boyfriend. And it happened in my 20s when I was on holiday. And uh, so I, uh, on my sponsor's advice, I, I went to rape crisis counselling and I got a lot of help at that time. And then it came back up again because the walls came down within me again. So that came back up again for me in recent years. And I got another two years of counselling. And it's just been incredible and amazing and hard and and worth it. So worth it to um, to avail of every help that I can. AA is the doorway. It's the open door. And then it helps me to, you know, live a life. Look at those dark secrets. Look at those monsters in the cupboard and take them out and share about them and and let them go as as much as is possible. Obviously, they're, they've affected my life, you know, they've affected me. 
Um, but I love that AA says, you know, no, no experience is ever wasted. Because often when I've shared the really difficult stuff, I've got the feedback that, yeah, obviously I'm not the only one that went through that. And um, and that there's a power in sharing. So when I was recently talking to someone and she said, what's vulnerability? And at first I said, well, it's people having power over you. And then I said, no, vulnerability where I feel safe and I can tell my truth is actually powerful for me too. You know, so that's what I've discovered. And, um, you know, so I... I work at uh, music and art and dance, which is quite incredible. And um, and yet some of my old ideas are there that it's not that it's not good enough, that I'm not good enough. And that so I've just been talking about that with a friend today and it's been amazing, you know, and I'm going to try some affirmations to try and turn around my thinking because obviously I have that old thinking inside in me and it's very very sneaky it's not it's not apparent it's not like that it's my first thought in the morning or anything like that but it's very very deep inside me you know and it's only through sharing and when I come to be able to be able to share with other people that that I trust and that I feel safe and I feel comfortable with then I can I can let you know those dark secrets out that I don't even know are secrets it's just like they're they're so drilled in inside in me in there you know but um yeah so that's where I am I'm I'm so happy to be sober I couldn't imagine drinking again oh my god my worst worst nightmare to pick up a drink again and to think that it could do anything for me um I love that I'm part of this fellowship I love that it's, you know, it's this thing greater than myself. It's this thing I can rely on that can rely on me. I'm part of a group. I show up. I am responsible. Um, you know, I love to see newcomers coming in and saying that they're they're finding something that, you know, that, that something is making sense for them. That really gives me life. It's amazing how it works. And um yeah, I love my life. I recently moved to Kinvara in the west of Ireland and it's it's the most beautiful place. Really is. It's gorgeous. <laughs> you were nearly here. Oh, well, you were here, Tommy, yeah, recently. I didn't meet you, but that was a pity, but maybe next time. But um, yeah, and it just kind of all fell into place in some ways. Of course it didn't. It didn't just land out of the sky, but but it kind of happened easily. I mean, it happened in lockdown. It happened, I was moving. I knew when my parents died, I'd be moving. I'm back to probably Claire, I thought. But in the meantime, circumstances changed in my life and I ended up looking at Kimbara and, yeah, rekindling an old relationship and finding this place, this magical place where, you know, last year... I went swimming in the sea every day, middle of winter, into that sea and out again in a few minutes. And I haven't done it this year, but maybe this winter I'll do it again, you know, because um, it's just amazing the things that I love today. I have a garden. I dug a few spuds today. I pulled up the weeds, you know, they, they drive me crazy, but I just try and, you know, I look at what I have today as that little reading I read out at the beginning, you know, for what I have for a, a drunk, you know, that I was a drunk, that I could have so easily died, so easily died, you know, I didn't, 
I didn't have the spirit or the want to live so much of the time. It all felt like too much for me, you know, just too much for me. And uh, and today I'm alive. I love being alive. I love being sober and uh, I love my life most of the time. And, uh, and most of the time, you know, I accept myself as, as I am rather than I don't want to be anybody else today. Always wanted to be somebody else, but I'm still working on that journey to feel that I'm good enough. I'm good enough for my life and for the people around me today. So I'm really grateful to be here and I look forward to hearing people share. And yeah, thank you all for listening to me. And I wish you all the best in sobriety.